Welcome to a special edition of BuddyCast. On this episode, no sleep for you. <laughs> All right, we talk with my new buddy, Larry Thomas, a.k.a. the Soup Nazi from Seinfeld. How you doing today, sir? I'm great. I'm great. It's uh, good to be on your show. Thank you Thank so you. much. Thank you for coming on the show. Like I told you when I first met you in, in person, if you had told me I'd be, I'd be interviewing the Soup Nazi about like three years ago or something, I would have asked, Really? How did I get that lucky? Yeah. Well, that's cool. You have one of the most iconic lines on the show. You're, you know, I remember, um, I remember seeing Steve Hunter, the guy who plays Banya. Mm-hmm. He's like, I remember seeing him do stand up, and I remember him saying, you know, they were, they, they have a list of Seinfeld co-stars, and like from one to one hundred, and I think you're ranked in like the teens or something like that like you're like 18 or 19 or something like that or my i got rolling stone ranked me 10 10 yeah that's it which so, is really incredible because there's only one guest star in front of me which was putty uh patrick warburton and uh -huh. then the rest were series regulars yeah so exactly. that was cool exactly and he was banya was ranked right below you and he's like, he was in one episode, and I was in that episode. He was in my episode, right. Yeah. That's so funny. But, yeah. but he actually made me really jealous because, you know, I, I never did a second episode, and I was lucky to come back for, you know, a few seconds in the finale. But, you know, the writer, Spike Ferriston, he was dying to write another Soup Nazi episode because he really felt it was his breakout character, but they just did not want to revisit that mm. character for whatever i never did find out why because i don't talk to jerry and larry david if i run into jerry all i do is go thank you man thank you thank you thank you yeah. he's gonna, you know it's okay but we don't really uh I, i've never found out the real reason but when i met steve and we were talking he was telling me the story of his first episode where in first rehearsal of the first scene he rehearsed, Jerry just stopped him and went, you're coming back. And I went, I am so jealous. <laughs> and you already knew like you had another job, you know, you were coming back on Seinfeld and you were just hired as a one episode guest star. So yeah, I think Banya was what, three episodes at least and, and then four, including the finale. Mm -hmm. so, so he had a good run. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But hey, you ranked above him on the, you know, yeah. on the list. And he's one of the few people that does have a catchphrase, you know, it's yeah. gold, Jerry. Gold. gold. Yep. So, yep. He's a good guy. So, let me ask you, how did you land your role on Seinfeld? It, 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 you know, a lot of little things went into it. I mean, the quick answer is it was just the normal audition process. Two auditions, a uh, uh, pre-read, what they call a pre-read is your first audition, and then a callback. And they happen to have been shooting, I'm uh, rehearsing the day of the callbacks. So, <clears throat> you know, it all happened very quickly, but it also backs up to my acting class and my acting teacher threatening to throw me out of class if I didn't get a job in six weeks because he found out that uh, I had not worked in a while. And 
he really liked my work. So he was very upset that I wasn't out there in the world, you know, booking jobs. And, you know, I was just very bad at that. I was not good at administration of, of the acting profession. And Jeffrey Tambor happened to be around who was, he was in the master's class. He was also the head substitute teacher. So he taught me frequently. And he was on the Larry Sanders show and a bunch of my uh, classmates got together and they forced me to ask him to do me a favor, which I categorically refused to do because I said, you know, where I come, Jerry said, uh, Jeffrey said some very nice things to me and where I come from, you just say, thank you. You don't go, oh, by the way, could you do me a favor? But, but they really pressured me into it. And I just asked him to introduce me to the casting director of the Larry Sanders show. And luckily it was the same guy that cast Seinfeld. So Jeffrey set up a meeting and the meeting went really well because my day job um, for about 15 years was being a bail bondsman. And uh, a general interview with the casting director could be a disaster because it's catch 22. If you have to have a general interview, that means they're not, you're not on the radar. It means you haven't done enough work. So when you come in to meet them and they say, well, you know, what have you done? What have you been doing lately? Your answers are stupid. Like, what are you up to? Uh, five foot nine? You know, I mean, you, if you had been on Broadway and you had had something great to say to them, they'd already know you. So you know what I mean? It's a bad catch 22. But when I mentioned being a bail bondsman, uh, it just broke him down. He just went, what? And so we ended up having this hour long conversation about being a bail bondsman. And so it, he, he never got to sort of make me feel like my acting career wasn't where it should be, which he could have very easily done. And plus the fact that he was a very nice guy. His name is Mark Hirschfeld. And he was, uh, after casting Seinfeld, he was offered the head of casting of NBC for a number of years. Because, uh, you know, Seinfeld with all its crazy guest stars and stuff. But, um, but that led into him. They had two uh, big guys that they were going to offer the part to. Um, one of them was Tony Shalhoub, of course. And the other one was uh, a man who's no longer with us named Richard Libertini, who had made a career out of doing crazy foreign characters. Like uh, in the original in-laws, he was the crazy military, uh, South American military general with the little face painted on his hand. And, you know, he'd go, Keith Pepe, you Keith Pepe, Keith the nice man. And that was him. And so I was up against the two of them. And I didn't find that out till the callback. But when I, well, I didn't find out Tony Shalhoub was in the running till 10 years later. But Richard Libertini was there. And I immediately thought, I've got no prayer against this guy. And somehow I booked it. And then, yeah, like 10 years later, I ran into the writer, Spike, and someone asked the same question. And I said, well, let Spike, you know, tell you what was going on in the room, because they basically told me to leave the room a couple of times and then come back. So I don't know. And Spike started talking about the conversation that went on in the room while I was waiting outside. And part of it was, you know, well, you know, we've already talked to Shalhoub and then 
basically Jerry and Larry said, well, I like Libertini and this, this angry New York guy better. So then it became between me and Libertini and uh, Jerry just left it up to Spike and said, well, you wrote it, you know, who do you want? And Spike says, I like the angry New York guy because he looks like the real guy that I'm writing this about. And um, he acts more like him. And that's how I ended up with it. Nice. Beautiful. Yes. So when they gave you the role, did they tell you specifically what to do? Or were you able to put your own spin on it too? Well, I definitely put my own spin on it because it was a rare case of an audition, the very first call. It was one of these rare cases where they say you got an audition at 10 a.m. Uh, the character's called the Soup Nazi. They want to prepare a Middle Eastern accent, but there's nothing on paper for you to look at, which is rare. They always like will fax you over a scene, you know, or email these days email you a scene. So I had nothing on paper to know what the scenes were like. I just knew the show really well. And so I envisioned a really militant food vendor, in my mind, like pushing a cart mm -hmm. on the streets of New York. And I imagined him in an army uniform, in army green. So that's how I went to the first audition. And the accent was purely an imitation of Omar Sharif. Uh, I had not ever done a Middle Eastern accent. Oh, I had, I had done many. I mean, with a face like mine early on, you've learned that you're going to play a lot of foreign characters. So I, I put Lawrence of Arabia on VHS and into the VHS machine the night before. And he, there was just this one line where he says, you're drifting Lawrence, stop drifting, be warned. And I went, that's it. That's, that's my accent. That's my voice. And so I started to ad lib in that voice. And I actually came up with a, a, a line that I didn't say no soup for you, but I said no soup. Uh, a friend of mine who's a stand-up comedian called me and I told him about it. And he said, ad lib for me right now. And I went, you small fry, baldy, I don't like you. I don't like the way you look. Go to the end of the line or you get no soup. And my friend goes, I really like that no soup thing. And I said, well, maybe I'll throw that in there, you know, if they have... Because I, I still didn't know if they were going to even have something on paper. You know, it might have been um, an improv audition. And so when I went to the first call, they had the first three scenes on paper. And so I just grabbed them and went into the alley behind the building to, you know, say them out loud. And No Soup for You was within the first three lines or so. And I went, okay, that's weird. So, you know, I went in there and it was very successful. Uh, the guy's name was Brian Myers. He was the associate casting person. And it was very successful in the, in the way that he laughed when he first saw me. And I not only had the army uniform, I had a beret. And so I looked exactly like Saddam Hussein. And in 1995, that he was very much in the news every day. And so he immediately, like, chuckled at the way I looked. And then, you know, as we read the first three scenes, he laughed in all the good places. So I kind of felt like it was successful. But then 
three weeks went by. And in the world of television, which I didn't know a lot about at the time, but I had heard that it all happens very quickly. You know, they have to cast an episode, they're going to shoot it the next week, whatever. So I was pretty darn sure that I didn't get it. And um, then there's this whole long story about this warehouse agent I had at the time. Warehouse agents were agencies that would accept anybody and everybody, and they wouldn't do a damn thing for you, you know? But they would, you know, put your pictures in some back room. And if you went out and got yourself a job for scale, it would be scale plus 10. And the 10% would go straight to them. So they would sort of get money for doing nothing. But you also got to have an actual agent's logo on your resume, which in the days of being completely unknown is uh, important. So it's sort of like a sleazy, symbiotic relationship. So I had one of those guys and like every time he called me, he reminded me like who he was. And I kept going, Mike, I know who you are. You know, and he'd go like, uh, Larry, this is Mike, your, your uh, agent. You know, and it was just, it became so funny that when I finally got, you know, they cast me maybe 10 minutes after I walked out of the room, after I read it for the second time for Jerry and Larry and the whole gang. And uh, I, he, it, those were the days of pagers. And he paged me before I got off the lot. And so I went to a payphone uh, that used to be right behind the Seinfeld soundstage. And I called him. And even at that moment, for the third time, he's going, uh, Larry, this is uh, Mike, your uh, agent. And I'm going, yeah, yeah, Mike. I, I just got through reading for Seinfeld. What? And he goes, well, they hired you. And I just went like, what? Why? And he goes, I don't know, but they just called and they hired you and they're willing to pay you top of show without negotiating. And and uh, I went across the street and got a sandwich and then went right to the soundstage. And uh, the other really great wrinkle about the story, I mean, there's a lot of funny stuff that went on, but I always like to tell this part because people are so interested in Jerry and what kind of guy he is. And this says a lot about him. He laughed his head off when I first came in and went through all six scenes. The second three ice cold off the paper. I didn't know there were three more scenes, but he was laughing so hard. I didn't want to stop. And most actors won't do this, but at the time my eyesight was a little bit better and I just picked the words up off the page as I read for the second three scenes. And uh, he laughed so hard, it was, I've never heard anything like it in any audition. And then they made me wait and I came back in and Jerry said, you know, man, uh, I thought that was really funny, you know, but I don't understand why your character's so mean. He goes, can you, you know, give it some of this maybe? And, you know, maybe he's nice sometimes. And I thought, like, why? He's the soup Nazi, you know? But it, it wouldn't be the first time a producer or a director has given me contrary direction to what I had in mind. So I tried it like that, all six scenes. And it was forever. It was crickets, man. Nobody laughed, you know? And I don't even remember how I did it. Like, I couldn't even repeat one line of it trying to be nicer, you know, it just didn't make any sense. 
wasn't funny. He didn't laugh. I thought I was cooked. And uh, they did tell me to wait again. So I waited like another half hour. And then uh, Mark came out and he said, you can go. Um, and then I and that's when I thought, well, I didn't get it, you know, because I, I had heard I had overheard him casting Yule Vasquez and John Paragon, the armoire thieves. <laughs> I overheard him telling them be at Soundstage 9 at 1 p.m. So when he told me to go home, I was 100% sure that I didn't get it, um, which wasn't a big deal because my career, you know, even though it had been almost 18 years, was professionally in an iron lung, you know. I, I hadn't gotten any big professional roles. I just did a lot of local theater. And so I wasn't expecting to get it, you know. So when I got that page from my agent and I heard I was cast, you know, I was amazed. But when I went onto the soundstage, as soon as I walked in and Jerry saw me, he came walking over to me and he goes, you know, man, forget about the direction I gave you. Just do it the way you did it when you first came in. He goes, for some reason, the meaner, the funnier. And so, you know, here's the expert on comedy, the million dollar man, you know, season seven, he's the most powerful entity on television, practically, aside from Larry David, who was the behind the scenes power that nobody knew about. But Larry was so powerful that network executives were not allowed to come to rehearsals, which is not existing on any other sitcom. And so, Jerry, for a guy like that to tell me, you know, your, your way was right, forget about my way. And so, in answer to your question, pretty much, it, in the end, what you're watching in the episode is almost what I thought of the night before the original audition. You know, the character didn't change much. Larry David threw in a couple of um, new... Uh, lines or bits after the audience left after shooting, which was changing when Julia did the hooah, hooah. <laughs> originally, I just went, no soup for you, and you know, threw her out. And he wanted me to go, very good, very good. You know what? What? No soup for you. <laughs> so we did that, and she fell on the floor laughing the first time I, I did that to her. And then the other line was with the Spanish guy that said, por favor, I think I said something like unacceptable. But he wanted me to go, adios, muchacho. But the actor had already been released and was gone. So Larry goes, you mind if I stand in? And I went, no. So when, I'm, when you like see my face and you see me go, adios, muchacho, I'm saying that directly to Larry David. He's on the, you know, he's across from me, but... They just didn't do an over the shoulder and they, you know, they patched in the other guy. But uh, and Larry David wasn't known at the time visually anyway. So there would, you know, there would have been no reason to do it for posterity. You know, now, of course, he's so recognizable. But yeah, so it was, wasn't something that they would have even thought of doing for fun because he had done a couple of appearances on the show. Nobody knew he was the voice of Steinbrenner. Nobody knew he was the first voice of Newman. Before Wayne Knight got cast, Newman was the voice of a guy about to jump off the roof, and that was Larry David. 
So, and then he was the man with the cape. And at one point he slid open a window and somebody wanted some French fries or something at a hamburger stand and that was, you know, but nobody ever knew that when I went into the callback, it was the funniest room because it was long and two couches on each side filled with people who were all important writers and producers that I got to know later, didn't recognize any of them. And at the end of the room, there were two desks facing each other. And of course, Jerry was sitting at one and everyone knew Jerry and Larry David was the guy sitting at the other. But to me, he was just some gray haired balding guy because nobody knew what he looked like. So I had no idea who that other guy was. I just, you know, saw Jerry and it was like, I didn't want to break character, you know. I mean, he, he greeted me, you know, hi, how you doing? And I just kind of went like, ah, you know. <laughs> it's, it's well known that if you're playing an extreme character to go in in character, you know, because you don't want to bump their imaginations and have, you know, and go like, hi, how are you guys doing? And then play a villain, you know. <laughs> so you kind of try to go in. And it's funny, too, because that advice was given to me by a great actress who's no longer with us named Sherry North in a little workshop I did with her once. And then, oddly enough, she showed up on Seinfeld as Babs Kramer, Kramer's mom. Mm -hmm. That was the lady that gave me that advice many years earlier. So, you know, it's funny in the uh, entertainment business that six degrees of Kevin Bacon that go around are so true. You end up going, oh yeah, and he told me this, and then I ended up meeting him on this, and then he was on, you know, it, it happens all the time. Absolutely. So, anyway. Yeah, let me ask you this. What was it like working with people like Jerry? You mentioned like he gave you advice and everything. What was it like working with him you know, working with like, you know, you interacted with Wayne Knight for a scene, you know, just working with all those guys. What what was most memorable to you, you'd say? Um, I think most memorable was the acting aspect of how I didn't need to do a thing. Like they did everything so perfectly, you know, that I just had to be, be, you know, it's something actors say and, you know, you know, it doesn't, but it's, it makes sense when you're in that position where you really don't have to push anything because they're giving it all to you. I mean, I knew the night before the audition that I would have an adversarial relationship with the four of them because I knew the show and I knew how, you know, they were so ill-behaved that anyone who is nicknamed the soup Nazi is not going to accept their behavior. But when it just came down to, you know, the first rehearsal, I mean, the first rehearsal, Julia walked in. This is maybe the most memorable. Julia walked in and started playing the drums on the counter. First rehearsal. And I just looked at that and it was like, you know, so I didn't have to, like, she gave me all I needed. And then, of course, you know, Jason and Jerry, and it was all so easy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Wayne, the funniest thing about 
getting to work with Wayne Knight, I was already a big fan of his from some movies he had done. And I didn't even get to meet him that week. I finally met him at the finale, you know, and I got to tell him, you know, what were my favorite of his roles in movies that I liked him in. But I didn't even get, you know, the whole thing went so fast. It was four very quick rehearsal days and they didn't build the soup kitchen till the final day. So I didn't even get to rehearse on my feet till the final day. And then we shot it that night. So I kind of felt like I was in and I was next thing I knew I was being shoved out the stage door, going back to real life going, no, I don't want to leave here. Mm -hmm. Wait, uh, the actor who played the um, custodian of, of Elaine's building, mm -hmm. let her move the armoire in, a guy named Tom Berry, who later was on Cold Case and, you know, other great things. He and I spent some time sitting in the bleachers watching them rehearse the Jerry's living room stuff. And I remember him just like leaning over to me and going like, is this paradise or what? And I went, oh, if I could come to work every day and do this, you know? So, you know, you got, you got something out of just watching them. Mm. Like evidently I had a trailer out in back of the soundstage. I didn't even know it until shoot night when I wondered where my costume would be. And the costumer said, it's in your trailer. And I went, I have a trailer. She goes, you've had a trailer all week. So I, I never, you know, I mean, I never got out of the bleachers. I just, after we would do a table read, I would just sit there and watch. And it was fascinating to watch, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I guess Julia playing the drums. And then uh, another really wonderful thing was she got to the ooh-ah-ooh-ah thing and she had not seen the movie. So she said, what is this? And everyone went, send them Al Pacino, son of a woman. And she goes, oh, I, I, I don't know it. I haven't seen it. So Jerry had to take her aside and coach her on how to go hoo-ah, hoo-ah, like Al Pacino. And so she was like imitating Jerry, imitating Al Pacino. And so the quality of how good she was, you got to give it to her that she didn't even know what Al Pacino sounded like doing it. Mm -hmm. So that was pretty memorable. So, you know, and then I was in awe. I had been a fan since season three, you know, we had a ritual at my house, you know, we would uh, videotape Seinfeld and Frasier. And on Sundays, we'd sit, prepare a special lunch and sit there and watch the two shows. And so we never missed a Seinfeld, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it was, it was a lot of awe uh, shooting um, another aspect came into play when all those huge, like Panavision cameras, you know, it was four cameras lined up in front of me with all the lighting equipment and all that stuff. It hit me that, wow, if I make a mistake, it'll probably cost them more money than they're paying me this week, you know, <laughs> because that's some expensive equipment and a lot of guys. You know, so it it was awe-inspiring. I had not done anything of that caliber. A lot of beg, borrow, and steal theater for all those years. Absolutely. That's one of those moments you hear something go crash in the background, and you're like, 
Yep, that sounded expensive. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, Michael Richards did that in, uh, if you watch the scene where he gives Elaine the armoire and she shoves him mm -hmm. against a door and he falls through a door, on the very first rehearsal, there was a piece of glass in that door. And Ooh. when you see the show, it's a piece of wood because in the very first time they did it, he broke the glass. So, oh. you know, so yeah, yeah, that actually happened. Yikes. So now let me ask you, you have one of the most iconic lines in the show, you know? Everyone loves it. Everyone adores it. I, you know, I love to say it. How often do you say it in public? Like, how often does someone walk up to you who recognizes you and you, and like, can you, you know, can you say this for me, please? Or like, hey, I've got my friend here who adores you on the show. Do you think you could just say it once for them, you know? Well, not every day. Before the days of, of cameos, I was, I would do it a lot at appearances. I would do a lot of out-of-town appearances and do it a lot. Uh, and then, you know, occasionally on the street, but, but not as often as you think, because if I'm not in a chef's costume, people don't always put two and two together. And then there's the aspect of how much in a rush I am. I've actually had to pretend not to be the guy once or twice because I was in a huge rush and somebody stopped me and, and said, you know, you look like the person that played the soup Nazi. Is that you? And I literally, for the sake of expedience, I had to go like, no, no, that wasn't me. I just, I, I get that all the time because I wouldn't have had time to give the person the respect uh, they deserve of, of talking to them. Mm -hmm. but sometimes I do. Sometimes like I got the time and someone says it and, you know, we have a conversation about it. But mm. the very first time was I was in a post office the day after the episode aired and someone immediately said it, you know, you look like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld and it was the next day. So I had a feeling, you know, the next day that something was up with that, you know, I mean, I thought the breakout character of the episode was going to be Ewell Vasquez as the crazy uh, 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 armor um, thief with the Cuban gay yeah. Cuban accent. You're talking to me, right? Yeah. Everyone laughed so hard at the table read when he would talk that I thought, well, he's going to steal the show. Because he actually threw that in. The, the, the direction was that they were gay, but he threw in the Cuban accent. Because mm. Yule, if you if you see him in things and you do frequently, he's always using a foreign accent, even though he doesn't have one. But he's always playing Hispanic people, uh, most of the time military, sometimes you know, uh, drug runners and stuff. But so he just threw the accent in, and uh, I thought for sure he was you know. Well, they did bring them back two times, so. Again, I was jealous when I bumped into them and they go, and they go, we've already been back twice. And I was like, oh, God, what's wrong with me? Rub it in, why don't you? What's that? Rub it in, why don't you? Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Yep. So let me ask you, how often do you keep in touch with people from Seinfeld? Is it often or is it non-existent type of deal? Uh, well, a couple of guys 
became good personal friends that I that I could be in touch with frequently if we have the time, which is Phil Morris, who played Jackie Childs. Mm-hmm. And uh, and Steve Heitner, mm-hmm. uh, Patrick Warburton, Danny Woodburn, who was Mickey, the little guy. Yep. Uh, a few of the fellow guest stars. We we got along well at the Seinfeld finale. And Rennie Santoni, who played Poppy, who I adore, and and uh, Liz Sheridan, who played Jerry's mom. We were friends for a while. Uh, she moved back east to be with her daughter. So, you know, a few of them. And then uh, out of the actual, you know, Fab Four, um, I'm going to uh, close the shade for a second so I'm not. Yeah, so go ahead. Go ahead. Out because it makes yeah. it really weird. But um, out of the actual Fab Four, uh, my most constant person to bump into has been Jason. And here's a great Jason story for you, how nice Jason is. I have a book out, Confessions of a Soup Nazi at Adventure in Acting and Cooking. And we were about a week away from printing. And the last thing I had not thought of was to get people I had worked with to do a blurb for the back cover, you know? Mm-hmm. I had toured with Barbara Eden for like on and off for three years. I mean, I, I had some good names. And I hadn't thought of it. So I go to a play one night and Jason's son is in it. So Jason is sitting right behind me and he's going, Hey man, how's it going? What's going on? And I went, Oh, well, you know, I've been writing a book and I just finished it and it's about a week away from printing. And, and he just goes, what can I do for you? And I went, really? Like, wow. I said, um, like a blurb, you know, for the cover would be a great idea. And he goes, okay, well, you know, here's my email address. Email me uh, a few pages or whatever you'd like me to see from it, and I'll, I'll write your blurb. And so I did, and he emails me back. I sent him the section where I talk about, you know, doing the, the episode. And he emails me back, not only a blurb for the cover, but he goes, and by the way, in case you need one, here's a forward for the book. So he just volunteered the forward from my book, which it, it, it's in there, you know. So that's how incredible Jason is. And uh, so and uh, and Julia's super nice. I remember there was a function at the TV Academy for Veep, and I went to just sit in the audience because I loved the show. And she saw me from the stage. And so as soon as they were done, she came running down from the stage and hugged me. And she goes, can we take a picture for my Twitter? And I went, you're, you're asking me to take a picture with you? And it's a funny picture if you see it. It's like I look like a deer in the headlights. Because I was still, as the person snapped the picture, in a slight state of amazement that <laughs> she asked me. And so she's very sweet, too. I haven't run into her much. And, and then I, I did a commercial with Jerry in 2012 for the Super Bowl, uh, 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 Acura spot. And uh, he was very, very nice, you know. And again, you know, he gave me an idea and I talked him down from it. And he let me a second time, actually, 
which was really funny. So even after 14 more years of being so powerful, he was still amiable to be talked out of his idea by me. So, um, so that was very nice. And then that, a couple of years ago, uh, probably nobody knows about this because it came and went so quickly. They actually had a Seinfeld slot machine. And it actually didn't make it, didn't work. But yeah. upon the release of it, I did a couple of appearances welcoming it into casinos. And one time it was in the Catskills and Jerry was headlining there. So they, you know, offered me tickets to the show as well as me doing a, uh, like a signing. Uh, mm -hmm. And so at breakfast time, we went into the little diner in the hotel and lo and behold, he was right there. And so we, you know, talked to him for a bit. But like I said, I, I, I fall all over him every time I see him going like, thank you, thank you, thank you, man. You have no idea what my life is like because of you. I support my family because of you, you know. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he's very amiable and always very nice, you know. So um, I, I wish I did have a closer. You know, the one guy I've never seen again is Larry David. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he's one guy I'd love to talk to because what's gone on with him since Seinfeld is so historic, you know, to go from behind the cameras to in front of the cameras and to become as beloved as he's become as a character, you know, from being, you know, half the brain behind the genius of Seinfeld. So it's just historic. So I'd love to sit with him and, you know, find yeah. out what his life has been like. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, I heard you mention this earlier. You have a book out, correct? Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it originated from the most common question I got asked uh, at audience uh, conventions and stuff, which was, did you ever think of writing a cookbook? And I would always say, now you must remember I'm an actor, <laughs> but coincidentally, I have always been an amateur cook because my mother was a single working mom who never learned to cook. So I said, I do cook, but I'm not a professional like you're thinking I am. And I would always go through that explanation. And friends of mine who would come to these things with me would go, why don't you just write the book? And I'd go, well, mainly because I've, I've never written anything down. I just make everything to taste. And if I were to write a book, I would have to, like, measure everything. And, you know. And so finally, a friend of mine got on me so much, she convinced me to begin. And so one year, a year before I wrote the book, I wrote a page. And the page said, this isn't so much of a cookbook as it is the story of a kid from Brooklyn whose single working mom never learned to cook. And so he had to cook, he had to learn to cook or eat TV dinners and macaroni and ketchup for the rest of his childhood. A macaroni and ketchup being the only thing my mom knew how to cook. <laughs> and uh, I said, so this is a book about things I've developed that are simple to make and tastier than something you could get from a freezer or a can or a box or a bag. And I wrote that. And then I put it in a drawer. 
for a year. And a year later, my I, I happened to have like had a couple of weeks with nothing to do. And my friend got right on me and she goes, pull that piece of paper out of that drawer and start writing. And so I started writing and I started kind of writing it in story form and talking about like the simple stuff. The first things I learned to cook, like the leftover pasta omelet and the bagel pizza. And you know what I mean? Stuff when I was a kid. And uh, those were simple. I could I could kind of throw those in off the top of my head with the, you know, how you could make it. And then um, I got to the point where the first big thing I ever made, which got attention, was my chili recipe. And at the same time, I started, I accidentally wandered into the theater department in junior college from the journalism department. And the teachers, I brought my chili to some function, some cast party, and the teachers were so in love with my chili that it became the joke for the next few years that I was there. The joke was that I wasn't really casting anything. It was my chili, you know, and uh, so when I got to the part about the chili, I had to remake it so that I could measure, you know, get measurements, and I wrote that story, and I and and I sent that to my friend and she goes, that's your book. And I said, what? And she goes, how your acting career and your cooking life go hand in hand. And so that's what the book is. Uh, every recipe has a story and every story has a recipe. And so it's half stories about a journeyman actor's career and half stories about 52 different recipes and how I came to cook them and why I cook them the way I do and why I use those ingredients. All my recipes are attempts to be as healthy as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, the one the one thing I avoided until the very end of the book was clam chowder, because when I was 15, I was the dishwasher in a chili restaurant called the Chili Place and the guy's specialty besides his chili was his clam chowder and his secret was smart and final clam chowder with extra clams thrown in and everybody loved it and it was really just the extra clams so i did that my whole life since i was 15 until i wrote this book at the very last page i went wait a minute i have told the story about the clam chowder it's my favorite soup and here I'm about to end this book without the guts to make my own clam chowder. So signing off for a minute, I'm going to spend a weekend making clam chowder, which I did. And a good example of making it healthy is, you know, if you go back east, especially in the Boston area, it's like heavy, heavy cream. And some people put bacon in it. And so it's very rich and fattening. And what I did was use low fat milk. And I thickened it up with cornstarch, which has no calories, no carbs, no flavor. It's just a thickener. So it's got that thickness to it, but it's really made with low-fat milk. And so um, that's an example of how I try in every recipe to make it more healthy for you. And uh, so that's what it is. It's, it's It's 400 pages just about of recipes and acting stories and uh 
I've, I've had both comments about it. I've heard people say, I love the stories. I've heard people say, stories are okay, but I love the recipes. So, so I've heard a little bit of both. Absolutely. Now you said your mom played a big role in that. And, um, you know, you and me talked a little bit beforehand, before the show, and you, you know, kind of gave me a little update about your mom. But what I took from the story about your mom was that she really was like someone who inspired you, someone who was like your hero and all that. Could you tell us a little bit about her? Yes. And, and I do suggest everybody go to either my website, realsoupnazi.com or YouTube and look up the song Ma, exclamation point, parentheses, ode to Doreen, D-O-R-I-N-E, because the song is uh, a two-verse, two-chorus explanation of my upbringing by my mom and her life. But basically, and where she stands in my acting career is that when I went from the journalism department to the theater department on a lark to get a date with a girl that was in the theater department, I got so excited about acting for the very first time, and I was already like 21. That weekend, I told all my friends, I think I want to try to become an actor, and they all just laughed at me. I mean, not just laughed, they looked like they were going to die, you know? And then I went home and I told my mom, and my mom went, oh, of course. I always thought you were a cross between Cary Grant and Clark Gable and Tyrone Power all rolled into one. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. But, you know, with, with that in mind, she gave me the one positive reinforcement to give it a shot. And I wasn't very good at it at first because I had no experience. But, um, and then also the fact that I've always known that the reason she spelled my name L-A-U-R-E-N-C-E is because of Laurence Olivier. Mm. And one time from a, a, a film I did in Chicago, I won a Laurence Olivier Best Supporting Actor Award from this uh, film festival. So I was able to tell that story that I'm actually more or less named after him, even though I don't come from a theatrical background. But so that was the first part of, of my mom uh, and my career. But earlier on, you know, my mom was uh, what many people of my generation would know as a single working mom with no child support from a deadbeat dad in an era in the 1960s, in an era where women were not allowed credit you had to have a husband co-sign for you or you could not buy anything on credit. So we drove around in a series of the worst jalopies you could ever imagine because my mom would have to pay cash for a car and then it would eventually die and she'd have to pay cash for another car. So I remember we had a 1949 Plymouth with no back windows. The back windows were gone. You know, so she used to in New York when before we moved to California, when I was 10 in New York, if we were driving someplace and it was snowing, she'd have to throw a blanket over us so we wouldn't get snowed on in the back seat. So uh, and lucky there were no seatbelt laws because I'm sure none of these cars had seatbelts. But, you know, uh, until 1972, when she finally got credit and ran out and bought a brand new Chevy Vega 
which was there was the Vega, the Pinto, and the Gremlin, were these three tiny little cars that all came out in 1972. And my mom bought the Chevy Vega and on credit, brand new. It was amazing. But so she had a tough, tough, tough struggle. And she, she, it's not that she never complained. I mean, she, she cried to her friends on the phone quite a bit, but she went to work every day. She never took a day off. She never took a sick day. And I'll always remember, and, and I, I knew it was happening, you know, but one day in particular made me realize what it was really about. One day in high school, in 12th grade, in, as a senior in high school, I got sick and I stayed home. And my, my older sister's boyfriend bought me a bottle of brandy. And he goes, keep pouring a little of this into a cup of tea all day. And of course, by three, four o'clock, I was drunk as could be. And I went to my school to see my friends after school. And they, you know, I ended up hanging out. They dragged me to a party. And it was like one of those, the night you'll never remember because, you know, by that time I was so drunk. And I ended up like sleeping on somebody's couch or somebody's floor or whatever. And in the morning, you know, I woke up with the light of day and I went, oh, God, I better get home. And I went home and my mother was standing there in her business suit, you know, her work clothes, uh, past the time when she was supposed to have left. And she just looked at me and she said, what happened? And I went, what? I Because we were latchkey kids, you know, it was sort of like be home by dark, you know. Um, we didn't really answer to her that much in the 60s mothers weren't that you know they'd send you to the park pool and drop you off you know they were you know they were caring and worried but nobody was worried back then and so um you know the look in her eyes let me know that she had gone through a night of complete panic and was going late to work for the first time ever you know in my life and it taught me a great lesson about how a parent cares about their child and doesn't always have to say it. But when I didn't come home and didn't call her, and we didn't have cell phones, you know, I didn't call her or come home. She she spent a night of panic. And at, after that, I never disrespected her in that way again. I always let her know where I was going and when I thought I'd be home and all that stuff. You know, but she was, she had quite the life herself. She was a real looker in her day, you know, beautiful woman. And she always was asked out on dates. And in fact, when we were young and before I could really cook, the way we would eat, my sister and I, was she would go out on dates and to fancy restaurants and she would not eat. She would order food and not touch it and put it all in a doggy bag. And the next morning, I'd open the fridge and whatever was in that doggy bag was half mine, half my sister's. So sometimes it would be a steak, a lobster, cold pizza, pasta. That's where I got my leftover pasta omelet. One day I took the leftover pasta and I rolled it into an omelet and sprinkled some mozzarella cheese and some some of the sauce on the top and that was born. 
So, so she used to feed us by going out on dates and bringing the food home. And, uh, it was, it was crazy. One time, even when I was 16 years old and we used to, in LA, we used to go to Palm Springs a lot as teenagers. There wasn't much traffic back then and we could get there in a couple of hours. And so we'd go all the time, especially at spring break. And one time I went there at spring break, came around a corner on Palm Canyon and walked face first into my mom who was there and she goes, I, I said, Ma, what are you doing here in Palm Springs? And she goes, well, I'm here with my friend Mia. I'm actually going to have dinner with Frank Sinatra. And she was like, grew up as a teeny bopper, you know, Bobby Sox or Sinatra fan. And I thought I had drank too much or something. You know what I mean? I thought it wasn't real. Like, I must be tripping or something because this can't really be happening. And then back home on Monday morning, my mom comes into my bedroom and she goes, you know, I'm waking up for school. She goes, aren't you going to ask me what happened with Frank Sinatra? And I went, that really happened? <laughs> you know, and she goes, well, yes, of course. And she told me how he flirted with her and whatever. And that was her, her big claim to almost fame. Besides <laughs> that she sang a song, she sang over the rainbow on a amateur radio show when she was a young girl, but she, her stage fright was so bad. She didn't follow it. But, uh, so yeah, she was a crazy hip mom. She was always letting me do what I wanted to do. Uh, but at the same time was a very good disciplinarian. Cause I remember way back in New York when movies were like a quarter and I think my allowance was like a quarter, you know, I always, I always figured allowance should be the price of a movie, you know? So when it came time for me to give my son allowance, I said, what's the price of a movie? But I remember when the theater in Roslyn Heights doubled up Help and a Hard Day's Night as a double feature in like 66, I think it was. And the price went up to like 50 cents or something. So I needed another quarter. And my mom just categorically flat out would not give it to me. And I remember just going, Ma, what are you crazy? It's a quarter. Give me another quarter. It's helping a hard day's night. All my friends are going. And she goes, no, your allowance is 25 cents. And she goes, you want the other 25 cents? Wash somebody's car or mow somebody's lawn or something. And I went out and found somebody's car to wash. And the guy paid me a quarter, you know. And, and to this, to even when my son was little, I would tell him that story. And I go, she would not bend. I tried everything. I tried to be the greatest lawyer in the world. I tried to convince her every, give her every argument of why she should give me the other quarter. And, and she said, nope, you got to work for it. And so she was, she was a great mom, you know, and now she's 92. And as we talked about, she's in a, what they call a board and care, which is basically a house with um, some elderly people in the bedrooms and then there's a small staff which 24 7 take care of them because mm -hmm. in nursing homes sometimes they're in a a room far enough away and my mom couldn't do that she's in dementia she doesn't walk very well she needs someone to be just a few feet away at any time so i basically pay for that it's kind of double the amount of her social security um, Social Security pays like half of it, and I pay the other half. And uh, 
you know, it's it's been rough watching the dementia get worse. And then the pandemic's been terrible because I used to go and sit with her every other day for at least an hour or two. And when the pandemic hit, the first thing they decided was, you know, don't go see older old people because they're too vulnerable. So they banned us. <laughs> I got banned from the board and care. And so luckily my sister got her uh, a landline phone by her bed. And so she presses number one and it calls me. And so she calls me all the time. And uh, I get to talk to her on the phone. But like today I went and I stood outside the front door six feet away with my mask on. And I said hello to her. But the last time I did it, which was a couple of weeks ago, by the time I got home, she called me and said, why don't you ever come see me? And I went, I, I just did, mom, I just got home. And she goes, really? So that's where the memory is now. Is she, you know, doesn't remember, but she's 92 and physically she's going strong. You know, she doesn't walk real well, but she's, you know, cantankerous as hell. Sometimes the ladies call me and say, tell your mother to stop yelling at us. You know? And then some nights she calls me uh, frequently and goes, I want to go home. And I go, you're home, mom. You are home. How do you know? Because you have a special ring. I have a special ringtone for you on that phone next to your bed. And I know that's the phone you're on. And she goes, well, I want to really go home. And I go, there, there is no other home, ma. Tell me what home you think you could go to. My apartment. And I said, you moved out of that apartment five years ago. That, you know, someone else lives there now. Uh, I said, there's no other home. You know, you are home. That's where you've lived for like five years. It's crazy to try to explain it to her. It's like a little kid, you know. She yeah. doesn't understand. And, uh, and then like I explained to you earlier, sometimes people say to me like, well, you're very good for, you know, putting in the money and supporting your mom. And I go, why? You know, I owe her at least 10 years. I was flat out dead weight. I owe her that. And I said, and then I got a paper route. And so I was kind of like, at least I, she didn't have to give me allowance for about five years. So I kind of owe her maybe five more. And then I said at 15, I got my first actual job. So, you know, it's it's up to uh, opinion of how much I really owe her, you know. So, um, you know, at least 10 years. <laughs> Dead weight. She had to put up with me. So that's what I, you know, that's the way I feel about it. But uh, it's it's amazing to still have her because I've, you know, many of my co close close friends have lost their parents, and that was devastating. I mean, depending on if it was before their time of like cancer or of you know somewhat old age, uh, I've watched my friends be devastated losing their parents. So, you know having her in dementia and having to deal with her daily and try to explain things to her is tough. But then again, I know losing her will be tough. So, mm. you know, weird. Yeah. It seems like she definitely played a role in your life. It seemed like, yeah. you know, she's given you the best years of it. She did. She did. She, she formed me, you know, mm -hmm. she made me, she gave me all my morals. You know, one time, before we moved to California, so I must have been around seven, 
living in New York. I went with some friends to the, we used to call the five and dime. I think out here it was Woolworth, uh, I, I, you know, Newberries, but we called it the five and dime. And we went in and we each stole something. I stole a little plastic compass. And that night I went to her and I said, I feel really bad. And she said, why? And I said, I stole something today. And I stole a little plastic compass. And she goes, well, what do you think you should do? And I said, I think I should return it. And she said, I'll drive you back there tomorrow and you can go in and you can put it back. And I did. And it made quite the impression on me. I never stole anything again or never wanted to. And um, I later met someone whose mother made them turn themselves in and get like arrested for stealing something when they wanted to return it. And that person grew up very badly, very badly, a very bad alcoholic who was dead by the time he was 45. And, uh, so if you look at the two different approaches, I think my mom had the right approach. Mm -hmm. She didn't embarrass me or humiliate me or make me get in trouble. You know, she allowed me to just correct my mistake, which you don't often get to do in life, you know, but you can try. And I brought my son up that way, too. I said, you know, if you could correct a mistake, correct it. I said, there's always the apology, but I said, you know what? I'm sorry is kind of almost worthless unless it was an accident. Because if you did something you have to say I'm sorry about, you shouldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. Just don't do the thing you have to apologize for. But definitely if it was an accident, of course, you know, apologize. But I said, just try not to do the thing you're going to have to apologize for. It's a good way to try to be. And then coincidentally, you know, I always credit Seinfeld with helping me raise him because he started watching at a very early age because I did it when he was uh, three, two, two or three. And so he grew up kind of watching it, learning a little more about what he was actually seeing as he got older. But one thing he would always do was he would always watch the actions of George. And he would go, oh, George, don't, no, don't do that. Don't, oh, God, you're going to get in trouble. You know, Mm -hmm. I always keep that up. Remember, do, don't ever be like George. Watch George. All the things George does, don't ever do. You know, just don't ever be like George. <clears throat> and I tell that to people these days when they go, do you have advice for kids or whatever? I would go, do they watch Seinfeld? Oh, yeah. Tell them not to be like George, <laughs> you know, because they were terrible people. They were, you know, all in their own way. They were self-centered, selfish, narcissistic whatever, but, you know, he was the worst, and he would lie all the time, and his lies would always, you know, catch up with him and be his comeuppance, and, uh, you know, that's what I say the show is about to me, when everybody has a different opinion about what was Seinfeld about to you, the show about nothing, I always go, it was about getting your comeuppance when you do bad things, you know, so it was about something actually very big to me, they were Four very misbehaved, selfish people, and they would always get theirs in the end, you know. And uh, it wasn't billed to be like that, or probably even written to be like that, but it happened. 
and because uh, they knew it would be funny. And I know their credo was, you know, never cut funny. Whatever's funny is what we use. And, you know, no sentimentality, just comedy. Mm. I, I did know that that's what Larry and Jerry were up to. So, you know. Yeah. Now, speaking of what uh, people are up to nowadays, what are you currently up to nowadays? Well, the, the pandemic has made me a professional, professional cameo person. Mm. Um, I started doing them last summer and, uh, you know, took me about three, four months, maybe five, uh, to do them after people started to suggest it because I didn't think I'd like it, you know. Um, I, I, the Soup Nazi is a character who doesn't really speak mm -hmm. unless provoked. And I knew that doing cameos, I would have to like start talking as the soup Nazi voluntarily because people don't talk back at you. And so I was very reluctant. But then in August of last year, I started doing them and I started realizing it was kind of fun to flesh him out a little. I'd never really fleshed him out. You know, I did a few promos for like the release of season seven uh, for the, um, the uh, Mattel Seinfeld edition of the Seen It game. The, we did some funny spots for that where they had me as the soup Nazi say everybody else's famous movie quotes, but as the soup Nazi with his accent and always wearing the kerchief. Mm -hmm. Even though I would dress up like the person, like as Robert Duvall from Apocalypse Now, I had my shirt off, I had the ranger hat on and the pants, but I had the kerchief on. And as the soup Nazi, I would go, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, you know. And so we did a couple of those, which were really fun. But in reality, I haven't fleshed him out that much. Mm -hmm. You know, I just say no soup for you a lot. And uh, in cameos, people would give me facts about, hey, it's my dad's birthday. He loves to ride motorcycles. He, uh, you know, is a, a big golfer and he loves your character from Seinfeld. And then I would make up a cameo like, you know, Lou, why don't you get off your motorcycle or drive your motorcycle over to the soup stand after your golf game and get a bowl of soup using the ordering procedure, you know. And um, I began to flesh out the character a little more and a little more. Um, I'd start to say no soup for you in different languages because I can say it in Spanish, I can say it in Italian, I can say it in Hebrew, I can say it in sign language. Uh, wait. And, um, you know, I, if, if they would tell me that, that the person was of certain nationality, I would say no soup for you in their language if I could, or I'd look it up, you know. And I started to really have fun. And then during the Christmas season, it got insane. I, the, my first day of doing 30 of them, I had to raise my price, not because I wanted more money or because I wanted to gouge people, but I needed to discourage people because I couldn't do more than that. And I was traveling a lot at the time because that used to be my business was doing personal appearances. Um, a lot of baseball, uh, minor league baseball games, which which I always loved because the challenge of throwing out that pitch, 
is a very big challenge for me because I wasn't good at baseball. And I always tell the, the general managers of the teams, I always go, remember, before I throw this pitch, actors are actors because they can't play baseball. That's why they did it. And uh, if they could have played baseball, they would have played baseball. And but but I kind of developed a sort of signature overhand lob that somehow gets to the catcher because not getting to the catcher is the embarrassing thing. You know, it's not the, nobody cares what your form. They don't expect you to have good form, but they do expect you to get the ball to the catcher. Even if you have to reach for it, it's okay. But to bounce it or throw it over his head is bad. And yeah. so I would I would do a few of those games every summer, and I loved those. They were fun, and uh, I was traveling quite a lot. And so the travel days and I get cameos were really difficult because you can't do them in airports, you know. And you yeah. gotta you know you gotta get Wi-Fi. You gotta be in somewhere quiet, and so that would be tough. And then um, the new year started, and you know I wasn't getting too many of them, and I was I had at least three trips that I made. And uh, um, all of a sudden the pandemic struck. And I heard, you're not gonna go anywhere. All, your, all my trips got canceled. Uh, you know, my, my, I was married at the time and my wife was stuck in Chicago and I was here and I was totally alone and thinking, what am I gonna do? I need to earn money and I, you know, I haven't worried about money in many years with all the personal appearances that just would come at me. And uh, all of a sudden, the cameos started like doubling and tripling because everyone else was in the same position. They were stuck at home. They couldn't shop. They, you know, so they found cameo and went, oh, these are great ways to give gifts. And they weren't even all like birthday gifts and wedding gifts and stuff like that. Some of them were pandemic gifts. Some of them were just saying, hey, I know you're stuck in quarantine. Well, you know, no, no restaurant for you or, you know, whatever. No going outside for you. And then uh, little by little, since I've been doing so many of them since March, and then, of course, Mother's Day and Father's Day were huge. Little by little, I began to introduce the new parts of the ordering procedure, which were step six feet to the left and then wear your mask. And then I began, I, I began to say no mask, no soup. And people began to request, can you say no mask, no soup? And so I trademarked it and it's being trademarked. And then uh, someone from a, a company that makes masks, uh, called me or, or uh, messaged me and asked if they could talk to me about the possibility of a no soup, no, no mask, no soup mask. So they're, they're working on what their company might want to do with that. It, you know, the possibility of if they want to do it. But so that's what I'm up to now. I'm a professional cameo person. Mm. And, you know, there's no production. So like, you know, before the pandemic, a buddy of mine, of mine and I were actually working on a sitcom pilot we wrote 10 years ago. We finally decided to hire actors and put ourselves in it and direct it and commit it to film. And so we were still editing and working on that. It's called Dads. And it's the story of 
of it's that we don't play these parts, but it's the story of a gay male couple who have adopted a son um, it, it, as a toddler or whatever and raised him. And now he's 18 and he's straight and he wants to get laid and they kind of don't know how to help him. And so they have these two crazy Spanish neighbors, which my friend and I do play. And it's, it's based on a couple of parts we played in Neil Simon's female version of The Odd Couple, the Costa Suela Brothers. And so we play these two crazy Spanish guys and we convince the dads to take him to a brothel in Tijuana. And so that's the pilot episode where they get themselves in way over their heads in going down to Tijuana and we're, you know, pushing them the whole way. And uh, we found some marvelous LA actors who were willing to work for nothing, actually. That's the state of the acting industry in LA. You know, people want to work so much, they'll work for nothing. And they're good, you know. Uh, there's just too many actors and not enough work. But we found a wonderful cast. And my friend and I just decided we can't not pay them. So we asked the Screen Actors Guild, what's the minimum ultra low budget payment, which is a hundred bucks a day. So we decided to dig into our savings and pay them a hundred bucks a day because they were just too, doing too good of a job. We could not, you know, couldn't make them work for free. Um, Cause you know, I spent 15 years working for free um, as a big borrow and steal LA theater actor back in the day. And I would write a play to do a play. I would, I would, my friend and I would get a play that was in public domain and find an empty theater that, you know, didn't charge us. And we would beg, borrow and steal costumes, scenery and props. And we'd put the play on ourselves and we couldn't, like one play, we couldn't afford to pay a technician to run the sound. So we actually had the actors entering and exiting and doing a sound cue on each entrance and exit. And it worked for about like six months. So it was crazy theater days, Impro lots of improv groups, you know, and uh, nobody paid you, you know? So uh, Seinfeld was not the first time I got paid, but it was the first time I got paid something that professional actors get. I remember I did in 1985, 10 years before Seinfeld, I did a half hour melodrama musical at Magic Mountain uh, Six Flags uh, during the summer in the 115 degree heat, uh, five, a half hour show five times a day, five days a week. And I got 185 bucks a week for it. So that was the first time I got paid as an actor and I loved it, you know. Uh, we'd have to wash our costumes in between every show because we would sweat up a storm and we had a washer and dryer in the dressing room, you know, and it was a hard, it was hard work, but uh, we enjoyed it. And then, but Seinfeld was really the first time I got, you know, top of show uh, prime time television money. And it was $2,610. And to me, it was the world, you know, um, even though what I didn't know when I was offered the money was, was how they tax you because, um, you know, they can only tax you uh, on a weekly salary, sort of, 
You know, that, that's, that's the way payroll companies are set up. They're not set up to tax a person on making 2,600 bucks one month and not working again, you know? So they tax you on the basis that you make that every week. Mm-hmm. So they, they withhold the crap out of it, you know? And so um, the withholding was frightening. Even though you get some of it back at the end of the year, you only got about half that amount when you got your paycheck. Um, and I also learned about agents stealing money from actors because that particular agent, the warehouse agency, attempted to steal that money from me. I didn't really know when I was supposed to get it, and that's what they banked on, and they um, weren't going to give it to me. And uh, three weeks later, uh, like a day or four weeks, like a day before the episode was going to air, I was... I called them and I said, where is my paycheck? And they said, well, we haven't gotten it. So I called the Seinfeld production office and they said, that check cleared the bank two weeks ago. And uh, I went to the agents and I fired them and threatened them physically and said, give me that money. Write me a check right now. And they did. And I had done the day before I auditioned for Seinfeld. I auditioned for a one line character on the Power Rangers, and I ended up getting it. And so I actually shot it, you know, three weeks before Seinfeld because um, they gave it to me right away, but it was 150 bucks, and they had never given me that. And so I, I demanded that as well when I found out that they were trying to stiff me. And then I found out they were stiffing a lot of other clients and they filed for bankruptcy. So luckily I got my money, but it was a uh, my first lesson in You know, nobody cares about an actor not making anything. But as soon as you start to make money, everyone wants to steal it from you. And uh, it's a it's a tough industry. You know, actors live a tough life. So when you see the big stars and you envy them, remember the journeymen and and they're even the stars days when they were the unknowns who were being robbed by their agents and, you know, uh, cheated and treated badly. You know, most of them deserve the, you know, the treatment they get because they worked for it. You know, that's somewhere along the line. They worked hard. Uh, Any other pertinent questions? I know you've had a few more. Absolutely. I'm going to actually end on these two questions. Two questions put into one. What's your advice? I ask this to all my buddies on the show. What's your advice to someone who wants to go into acting and what's your advice to someone who wants to write a book? Um, I'll do the book first cause it's more simple. Yes. Uh, you know, self publishing is at your disposal, which you have to pay for it, but mm-hmm. then you can take the book and promote it any way you want and be your own publisher. And that's what I did. If, if you get, if you're lucky enough to get published by, by some of these great big houses, Random House and Simon Schuster and stuff, which is very almost impossible. Um, you got to like sell 250,000 books before they give you a dime. Whereas if you're a self-publisher, you know, you do a deal where you pay a couple of thousand bucks, but then every book you sell, you get like 50% off, you know, or, or 90% of depending on the deal you make. So I would say, you know, look into self-publishing um, as far as writing the book, uh, stick yourself in front of that computer every damn day. 
because you're going to find a reason every day not to sit down and write. And if you write for half an hour, you you beat that. You know, it's 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 not you. It's in every every writer does that. So it's not that you're a procrastinator. Every writer finds it hard to sit down and start. And then the acting is is much tougher. First of all, when I started acting, it was a totally different game. The guy that gave me the advice when I said, hey, could I make money at this if I'm not that good or if I'm okay at it? And he said, you know, there's so much great episodic work out there and commercials and all that stuff. And yeah, you know, a good, a competent actor can find work. And then many years later, I ran into him and he wasn't even working and he was going like, sorry, who would have known about reality and whatever, you know. And uh, so it's a different world today. More people are interested in people that are not actors acting on television than actual actors. And uh, so it's very difficult. And there are 10 times as many actors as there ever were. So it's very hard to get seen for parts and whatever. And they really just look at people that have done great big things like Broadway and whatever. So a great idea is to go do the New York thing and, you know, get your stage chops down. L.A. isn't a stage town, you know. Uh, it's very hard to, like, go from doing... Nobody goes to theater in L.A., so nobody sees you. And to try to get into, like, sitcoms and stuff with no real experience is very difficult, unless you happen to be somebody with an incredible look. But remember... It's a dime a dozen. There are a lot of beautiful women wanting to be actresses, a lot of handsome guys, you know, and uh, work on your talent. Be the best you can be before you even try, you know, uh, train, find a way to be good if you're not. When I first started and I was basically told, you're not very good at this, the next semester, uh, I was 21, 22, the next, next semester, a 19 year old Kevin Spacey showed up out of high school at our department. And that was a knock in the head because he was so awesome. It was ridiculous. You know, you just went, what do you need to learn? You know, he was, he was absolutely brilliant and it was quite obvious and he could do everything, sing, dance, act. You know, and he was there for half a semester and then went off to Juilliard and, uh, you know, rightly so, and was on Broadway within the year. And um, but it was a, you know, it was a wake up call that you better be good. I remember him doing a scene in one of our acting classes when he was in, in the theater department. And I turned to my friend who was one of the better actors in the department, but still awed, awed by Spacey's talent. And I turned to him and I said, Tony, like, do we have to be that good to make money in this? Because that ain't going to happen with me, you know. And he said, I don't know, <laughs> you know. So I always tell people, like, find out what the nature is going on. Talk to actors that are working now at the time. Find out what they're doing, what's going on. Um, but but really, you know, be the best you can be because you're up against the best. Mm -hmm. and, and even if you do have those great looks, which which is important, it could get you in the door. 
just remember a lot of other people do. There are some very good looking people out there in this business. So um, there's a, uh, a, a, a guy out there that, uh, oh God, what's his name? I'm forgetting his name, but I remember him in acting class, very tall, good looking fellow. And he, he has a good career. He works a lot. But I remember when Jeffrey Tambor read him his rights because he was kind of coasting thinking he could get by Brian Van Horn or something, Brian Van something. But I remember Jeffrey just stopping him in the middle of the scene and going, don't fool around. Don't come in here half prepared, you especially, because he goes, you've got the looks to get you out there. So you're going to have to be as good as can be. So I want to see you come up to do scenes in here and knock my socks off with your acting because I'm not looking at your looks, you know, and, and that guy really did buckle down and he ended up uh, on some good TV shows and doing some good work. But it's the most important thing is to get as good as you could be. And if you've got a, a penchant for theater, get to New York, you know, even Chicago isn't as good as New York, but, but better than LA for theater. Um, but, uh, good if you're into improv comedy, you know, you got second city out in Chicago. So if, if that is an area you're good at, you know, try Chicago, but LA is just a really tough place for beginners because, you know, we got the groundlings, which is probably the only good sort of improv sketch comedy group. So definitely a place to go. Um, there are some good teachers and places to study, but there are tons and tons of bad teachers because everybody can be an acting teacher. And, you know, I've always said to people that have said you should teach acting because, you know, I spent 30 years learning about it. And I go, you know, I know a lot about it, but there's a gift acting teachers have. And that gift is to impart that knowledge into a person's brain that's like acting in their head how to get it into the body. There's, there's a talent to that. And, you know, it's not just theory and talking about it. It's, it's working with the person and, and somehow getting them out of their, you know, logic and into their emotions and their, you know, instincts and so forth. You know, it's, 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 it's playing life as you, as you really live. And not a lot of people have that gift, you know, smart actors sometimes don't even know how to do it. They're smart, but they just don't know how to open up those areas. So get good and uh, go to where the good action is for what you do. And, uh, you know, if, if you're a musical person, go to Broadway. Um, you could end up in movies and television shows. So, so many of the great sitcoms of my youth, the stars of those sitcoms were Broadway musical people, Bonnie Franklin and Linda Lavin and, you know, all those, uh, the guy that played Barney Miller, all those people came out of Broadway musicals. And, uh, you know, but uh, it's, it's a tough, 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 tough game, so don't go into it lightly. Mm-hmm. So. Absolutely.
Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an honor to have you. Like I said, if you were to go back two years ago and tell me I'd be talking to the soup Nazi in real life, I would then, I would have been like, "What in the world? What in the world grapple did I win to get that?" You know. If I had gone back, you know, whatever it is now, almost thirty years, twenty-eight years, and to tell me I would have a catchphrase and a character, I would have gone you crazy. So, uh -huh. so anyway, it's been great, and I do have something to do at seven, so I'm yep. gonna run. So. Before you run, can we get the iconic phrase? No soup for you. Beautiful. And so uh, you're, you're good at this, so you're Thank gonna you. have fun. Thank you. All right, tell my buddies out there, go be a buddy to someone else. You know, okay. be someone's buddy today. But thank I you will. for joining us. And bye bye. Appreciate it. Have a good day, sir.